And that's a really useful way to think about stories um, and sort of push yourself to find the biggest frame that you can for a story and to broaden it and like go into the implications because those are the things that aren't going to age poorly. Whereas journalism that just tries, tries to keep up with like the latest developments is going to be overtaken the next day. Welcome back to Media Voices. We are the weekly podcast, daily newsletter, and occasionally RG Twitter account that takes a look at all the news and the views from the media world over the past week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. I'm Peter Houston. And we just want to let you know that the Publisher Podcast Award entries are now open. If you have any podcast work that you want to shout about and get in front of a panel of judges, incredible judges from across the publishing industry, you can enter now over at publisherpodcastawards.com. All the information you need is there, so please do go and check it out. And that extract you heard at the beginning of the show is from my interview with Laura Mars, literary editor for US politics and culture magazine, The New Republic. The magazine's been a focus for liberal discussion for over a hundred years. We spoke about its focus, the challenges of being in that space at this time, and also Laura's work on the New Republic's Politics of Everything podcast, which is an excellent podcast. Very, very nice. But before then, we're going to go through the news roundup, and there was really only one, I suppose, two stories that we could talk about this week. So, Esther, why don't you begin by telling us why Facebook's week started badly? Uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of not surprised we're discussing Facebook yet again. Like, what was it? Two weeks after we've discussed it before. Well, I saw an article. Um, I, I saw an article that argued that it should that Facebook and Google should be given a space at the table at the UN. I uh, saw that. Yeah, because of how influential and kind of independent they are now. Oh, so anyway. we talk about it because it permeates everything. Yeah. We mentioned um, last week just before that CBS News were about to an interview with the Facebook whistleblower. Well, that aired last week, um, last last an evening, and um, the Facebook whistleblower is a lady called Frances Horgan who was employed at the platform from 2019 on its misinformation team. Um, and the interview she gave was, again, it's, it's, it's things that we probably all knew but didn't really have any evidence to sort of really concretely say what was going on. I mean, I mean, Chris, you, you wrote a piece of the drum about this. Um, I guess you can probably... You probably know the uh, the key allegations better than I do. Yeah, I, do. I mean, the, the, the central allegation is that Facebook, you know, as we've learned over the course of the release of the Facebook files on the Wall Street Journal, has been aware of certain things that it has not disclosed to either its advertising partners or to regulate potential regulators or to the public. The key one, that she, I mean, the one we got all emotive about is this uh, kind of reticence to share that it knew that Instagram was potentially bad for young women's mental health. But... Uh, Francis is, is now basically saying that it goes much wider than that, that that was indicative of a wider policy at Facebook, which is that the company is aware of and capable of doing much more to curb misinformation across its platforms and actually kind of active disinformation as well. But it chooses not to do so because it prioritizes engagement with audiences and therefore ad revenue above everything else. So including you know, user safety. I mean, there, there were so many great quotes in that, but one of one of the ones I thought really stood out was um, where she said that, you know, there were conflicts of interest between what was good for the public and what was good for Facebook. Mm. And Facebook over and over again chose to optimise for its own interests, like making more money. Um, and, and like, she, she was quite careful to... <laughs> Well, I, I think she, she was quite careful to emphasise that it's not that people at Facebook are particularly malicious. It's just that 
the incentives are misaligned and that if if Facebook is struggling to know what to do about a situation, they'll just go with their own interests, which we all know, right? Mm. It's very... It's, you know, that's, you can take this straight back to the very beginning and I, and we're all culpable in this. I've, I don't know how many conferences I went to where someone stood and said, oh, look at Facebook's and their philosophy of move fast, break things, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and we all bought into that bullshit. What we didn't actually realise was they were moving fast and breaking society. Publishers quite often have the same kind of incentive misalignment. You know, we, we, we see it so Absolutely. many times where, where, where they're, they're incentivized for the clicks, the outrage, everything else, and, and they're making money, not what's morally good and right for society. Well, this so, is and I've, I've seen so much finger pointing and like outrage and horror what Facebook's doing. Facebook are just bigger than everybody else. Yeah, that's exactly the point. This is absolutely a scale issue. The same issues about uh, body image were levelled at publishers for years and years and years. Yeah, I mean, um, look, look, look at women's magazines for the last mm, like 40 yeah, years. Absolutely. Yeah. Then on Monday, Facebook broke... <laughs> It moved fast and it broke itself. Facebook and its associated products, Instagram, WhatsApp, were down after an internal error at the company. Uh, the details of which are very funny. Effectively, it broke itself so thoroughly that people, its own employees couldn't even get into the building to fix it because everything was tied to its own internal systems. But uh, there's been so many explainers about what actually happened there and why it's bad that everything is so closely tied together, which we can get into. But they fall just outside the purview of this podcast, so we're not going to discuss that in any technical detail. But... What mainly because we don't understand it? I understand some of it. There was Ooh, issues I've, with- I've heard, I've heard rumors that um, <laughs> I've heard rumors that, an ang- that they needed to get an angle grinder to get into the server. I heard that. I don't, I'm not sure if that was actually borne out by any subsequent reports, but I did hear that. I understand it. They, they had problems with BGP, which stands for I think big gear problems. So all the internal cogs <laughs> just stopped turning. So That's then they the- got the BFG in. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> So it was basically just uh, a snafu. Yeah, a little bit of a snafu. Well, I think, I think as, as, as cynic would say, the timing, the timing of this was possibly to distract from what had just happened with the... I swear he just issue. switched it off. He just got up in the morning and thought, you know what, I don't need this crap. Yeah. I'm switching it off. I saw, I um, saw but, so many conspiracy theories that were just like, oh, what a handy time that they could maybe delete all the logs of what was actually being shared. I've, I've also seen... a. A lot of people who sort of understand the, the technical detail of this say that a lot of us don't understand just how fragile the internet actually is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's much more like this would break accidentally. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Everything everything is just held together with cobwebs on the internet. But I, I think you can counter that conspiracy theory by just saying, do you see how much money they lost? Yeah, was, he, he personally <laughs> lost $6 billion. Yeah, and it was obviously going to bounce back as soon as it came back. But yeah, yeah. $6 billion is, is a hell of a gamble to take to get rid of a couple of server logs. Anyway, while Facebook was down, traffic to publisher sites increased quite dramatically. Um, and so everyone was like, yay, look at this. We had a six-hour glimpse of a paradise about what would happen if Facebook wasn't there, which I think is bollocks. Yep. I just want to know how much of the traffic to publishers was people going to find out what has happened to their food photos yeah. and like mad uncle's posts. I, and also part part of it is, is borne out by the fact that general news sites and tech news sites saw the biggest traffic increases. That's not the most interesting place the traffic went though, is it? Well, I'll go, go on then. What? Pornhub also oh saw my a, God. Yeah, a huge spike in traffic. I think it was, traffic was like 10% up which does back up 
our kind of friend of media voices and Tim was assertion that we're still in the attention economy and it wouldn't necessarily be publishers that are the sole beneficiary of any permanent outage. Well, what, and, you know, like does... Twitter, Twitter had a huge traffic spike as well. They actually got to the series, they were really struggling oh, to cope. I love that. Yeah, that was great. So, Twitter you know, responded if, quite well. If we got rid of Facebook, something else would just spring up in its place. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that say about humanity? That <laughs> I'm either going to spend my time on, on Facebook looking at, I don't know, dog pictures. <laughs> Oh, I'm going to Pornhub. Well, yes. you, you, <laughs> depends what, what they're looking at. What's that human it? beings? <laughs> it's it's all just bread and circuses. You know that. I believe this is the episode we've got an interview with the New Republic <laughs> literary editor, a magazine that published George Orwell and Virginia Woolf, and we're talking about Pornhub. Oh yeah, I know, but it's it, it does kind of put paid to that idea that you know what, we would live in that halcyon age of publishers being the primary source of, you know, information and stuff, because people will just go elsewhere. They always have, they always will. Yeah. Um, I think the, the other thing the outage brought up, though, that was um, yeah, quite interesting is that, like, as, as much as we sit here and joke about, you know, turning Facebook off and the fact that the world would be a better place without it, um, it did actually highlight that for a growing proportion of the world, especially non-US, uh, Facebook's properties, especially WhatsApp, are actually now critical business infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they're essential business tools for sort of small businesses in, in developing countries. And, and you suddenly got this situation where, um, and, and for, for a lot of, for a growing number of people, Facebook and its properties are the internet. Mm. Um, and and it's, it's it's very privileged to be able to say, oh, yeah, you know, we should all get off Facebook. We should all shut it down, blah, blah, blah. Because it's it, it does make a huge difference in a positive way in other parts of the world. And it also exposes them to massive misinformation. But... Yeah. <laughs> into- <laughs> Yeah, you couldn't leave our Lord. <laughs> yeah. but no, no. In the Facebook files on the Wall Street Journal, they also did kind of point out that any such disinformation outside the US is basically not their priority. So if, as you mentioned, kind of their the critical infrastructure, they are critical infrastructure for places outside yeah. the US, which they are, then that I mean, surely... It's, like, it's, it's brilliant for small businesses in India, but you can also be a, a human trafficker in Egypt. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, Facebook spent a lot of time arguing last year that it it didn't it wasn't big enough it wasn't too big and that it didn't need to be broken up and I think this just shows that if that much can go down on on a couple of servers they need to be broken up and they need to spread things a little spread, well, spread things they, out they, they were they were like pointing people back to Nick Clegg's May uh, op ed about oh we need government regulation we were up for government regulation. <laughs> It's just bollocks. It's just all just what's the equivalent of regular greenwashing for regulation? <laughs> Regula- regulation Same washing. Kind, yeah, yeah. Reg, it's regulation. Even you know, one of them <laughs> when while um Francis Hogan was given a testimony or whatever, they were on they were on Twitter because Facebook was broken, I think. Anyway, saying that. Um, saying that that she didn't work in the team that she was commenting on. That's not how whistleblowers work, dickhead. You just <laughs> you take the information and you contextualize it. Mm. But they're like, see, see, well, she didn't even work on that team. See, told you, told you. It, it was very weak source, yeah. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for ruining my weekend talking about this. Hey, utter bullshit. hey it's not yet nine Again. o'clock on Saturday. It could, Again. It could yet pick up. What Facebook could go offline again? Well, it went down on Friday. Well, it, it, yeah, it went, it went down Friday night. 
And now for the news in brief. Um, despite us spending quite a lot of time eulogising about Aussie media last week, <laughs> Um, it's now, uh, founder Carlos Watson gave an interview just days later saying that um, the announcement that the company was closing was, uh, quote, premature. It's a miracle! Um, and he said, <laughs> he said, at our best, this will be our Lazarus moment. Uh, he said that to CNBC. So he's not given any details during the rest of the week about just how he plans to do this, given that uh, quite a lot of investors have pulled out and they've got a pending FBI investigation. But yeah, Aussie is apparently back. Uh, if no. they come back, this is like the biggest grift. And this is, this is... Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, this is somebody looking at. Um, this is him looking at the traffic stats when people suddenly started googling what is Aussie, and seeing <laughs> that the traffic had bounced. We've all heard of them now, haven't we? That's true. I wish I hadn't. Yeah, I wish I hadn't. So, can we get some good news on that? Well, well, absolutely. So, Google is releasing a new product in association with the News Revenue Hub to help newsrooms with technology that makes it easier to get funding. So News Revenue Engine will, quote, make it easier than ever for mission-driven digital news outlets to steward and convert casual readers into sustaining donors. So it's effectively a set of marketing tools which make it easy to ask for money from readers, which is, I suppose, straight down the middle of the kind of the problem that the publishing industry has with fly-by-night readers and with this idea that you should be able to pay for individual articles. No individual articles again. We eh? can't get into this discussion again here. Uh, more good news, The Spectator has more than doubled its pre-tax profits in 2020. 40% boost to subscriber numbers balanced out the challenges of the pandemic uh, in other parts of the business. Um, but, so in the bad times, the publisher saw newsstand sales fall 23%, advertising sales down 17%, and physical events, well, we all know what happened to them. Um, sponsorship came back through podcasts, virtual events, and a new online TV show. What's a new online TV show? We we spoke about this actually when it launched. It's it's a very very standard, um, almost news roundup format where it's just uh, internal staff. You know, at one point it was Andrew Neil. I don't know if it's still doing. Just kind of, of chatting about the news GB. format of the day. It's not GB News, is it? No. So it was a it's basically a morning briefing type TV show. And YouTube is looking to hire its first executive focused on podcasts. Um, YouTube's actually already one of the top destinations for podcast listeners, really randomly. Mm. Um, and it's got it's got a growing number of podcasters that will film whilst recording episodes and then and then releasing them up there. We should. Um, do I'm, that. So, I'm slightly surprised this hadn't. Uh, Peter, two of us are oh, sitting here in our dressing gowns right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this one, this one, I think is interesting because YouTube Premium. It's effectively the only way that you can, you know, have your phone off and still watch on the go. That's when a lot of podcasts are still consumed. So what is effectively going to, what's their strategy for monetizing this? Is it going to be bundling in with YouTube music, as we've seen Spotify do, or is it going to be its own separate product, I suppose, YouTube podcast? Yeah. I'm just slightly surprised that they hadn't got anybody looking at this already. Yeah, like, too, like it's been huge. The platform's been huge for podcasts for quite, mm. like, at least three or four years. This one... This one I think is really fun for all the wrong this reasons. This one made me yeah. absolutely howl this week. Yeah. So the Daily Mail has turned, I think actually technically the Mail Online, turned a British human rights lawyer's tweet thread into a column, which made it look as though he'd written it on their behalf. So he had a byline photo. He had kind of his name there as any contributing author would. 
Um, but that's not what he'd done. He had just written a tweet thread, which they had unrolled and and turned into this column. So there's a whole thing here about, you know, who owns tweets and owns Twitter and sort of like where the value lies in individual tweets, which, you know, get embedded into articles as a standard practice now. But to make it look like that fully written piece is gross. That's outrageous. That could do reputational damage. Absolutely mental. Absolutely mental. Well, his response was brilliant. Mm. Um, he 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 came back and said that they'd suggested he he said i don't know if he asked them to pay him yeah anyway, he did. They, they they come back and said okay well we'll pay you 100 quid and he's like maybe you want to reconsider that given what you did was probably <laughs> illegal yeah so i mean he got 250 quid for a for a i don't know 300 word 400 word piece uh, eight, not writing it's not it's not a bad rate Sounds and he got the article taken down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's actually yeah. the kind of thing that, you know, we're going to use that word again. It's actually the kind of thing a bean count, I would say. <laughs> Why don't we do this? Yeah. And, the, and the, the editors or whoever felt that they couldn't say no. Just don't just do not do it to a lawyer. Yeah, really, that was that is bonkers. You know, if we broadcast this on YouTube, when you said um, bean counters, I could have had a flashing like icon. It would have gone, bwah, 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 bwah. Peter's bean counter counter has gone up again. Well, I need to be on. I want to. I want to be this YouTuber guy. <laughs> right. For this week's episode, I spoke to Laura Marsh, literary editor of US Politics and Culture magazine, The New Republic. We talked about how the magazine has evolved over its hundred-year history and the role of the literary editor in commissioning people with big ideas. We talked about the politics of everything podcast, which Laura works on, but first I asked Laura to describe The New Republic. The New Republic um, is a largely political magazine. It was founded in 1914. Um, It's always been intensely involved in the question of what liberalism is and what liberal politics looks like. Um, and I guess, I guess another thing I would tell people about it is that, um, as well as having this focus on politics, it's always been very involved with culture, arts, literature, and kind of the political dimensions of culture too. So if you're looking at, um, a UK equivalent, would that be like the new statesman? I used to wonder about this too, um, obviously having grown up in the UK, I think we don't have quite as wide a range of magazines um, as exists in America. Um, But the New Statesman isn't a bad comparison because it has, you know, a very political front of the book, like front half of the magazine. And then it also has like really good coverage of literature and film and art. Um, So I think that's a good comparison. So it's that real mix between what's going on in politics and what's going on in culture. Yeah, and the idea being that like the same kind of person might be interested in both and the same kind of writers might write about both. So someone who's writing about what's happening in Washington or in Westminster might also have an interesting reading of a new book or a TV show. And you're still in print? You've got 10 issues, 10 issues a year, is that right? Yeah, we, we're a print magazine uh, and we also publish daily on the website. The, the tyranny of print and web, isn't it? You've got to fill both. <laughs> um, I, I kind of find it, I find the print structure very useful because it gives the year of the magazine a rhythm and it also gives me like a set of boxes to put things in. So I know 
that I need, you know, a film piece every issue, or I know that I want to cover something on fiction every issue. So it's, it's a nice way of structuring what we're doing and, and making sure that they're, that we're actually giving readers a variety of stuff rather than just reacting. So your role is literary editor, is that right? Yeah. What does that mean? What do you do? What's your focus? Um, so the magazine sort of split into three sections, the print magazine. Um, the front is short um, political commentary. The middle is features. And then the back, which is what I edit, is um, essays about culture, books, um, and other forms of art. Um, so I edit that. Um, the I, It's a set of usually five or six essays of about 2,000 to 4,000 words each. Um, wow. So, and they're, they're kind of in this tradition of essay reviews um, rather than straightforward book reviews. So they're trying to use a book or in some cases a film or an art show to explore a bigger idea that bigger idea is a point isn't it they're, they're like a stepping off point it's a way for people to get their own opinions about the world out there yeah i think so or i think it's um it's it's an occasion to think about a subject so if we were publishing mm. a book about the new deal um i wouldn't necessarily want the reviewer to go through and explain like what the author of that book does well in each chapter i would like yeah. them to write an essay about the New Deal and, and why it's interesting to think about it now and um, to engage with other views of that, like to, to kind of give the reader a sense of what is the debate about this, this subject and how can I navigate through it? And the book is going to be part of that. Like you're, gonna, you're not going to ignore the thing that you're reviewing. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. at the same time, I think what, the way I see magazines at their most exciting is that you can kind of give a reader the win a window onto a whole world of debate and discussion that they might not otherwise have access to um, because not everyone is spending all day reading like every single opinion about what's happening in politics or every single take on a new novel. So your challenge, I would think, there is commissioning people that have really good insight and good points of view. You know, you can't just drag someone off the street and say can you review this they really they have to be a thinker in their own right i think so i think um it's de it's definitely like there's a specific form of writing that, that we do and that several other similar publications do so i think that it's important for a reviewer to be aware of of that as the mode that this is not this is not a straightforward review um and for them to be interested in writing in that way um so I think that that in some ways that reviewers are sort of like a self-selecting group of people who admire this form of writing and aspire to yeah. to take part in it. Um, definitely, when you're commissioning this kind of piece, you can't um, dictate what the person is going to say because it's too complicated. <laughs> so yeah. I couldn't I couldn't say well, I think we should have something on this, and I think you should you know you need to make this argument because that just wouldn't work. Um, so yeah, I have to kind of have a sense of what I think, you know, think they might be interested in certain dimensions of this and they would have something interesting to say. But part of the fun is I don't know what that's going to be. You're matching the right people with the right book, basically. That's the clever part. Yeah, yeah. So I think it, you try to get a sense of the writer's interests and what they might have something interesting to say about. So, so not necessarily the thing that they're always writing about because they might have 
said everything they have to say about that. Something that might push them into slightly fresh territory that would be interesting and, you know, stimulating for them and for the reader. I mean, I, I looked at the, some of the past contributors and the, the list is, you know, it's basically a who's who of public intellectuals, uh, Maynard Keynes and Virginia Woolf and George Orwell, some of the British ones. Um, how would you compare those kind of people that everyone knows about to kind of public discourse, public intellectuals today? Oh, I think, um, well, the first thing you have to remember is some of those really famous contributors when they were writing for the New Republic were not well known. Um, some of them weren't, um, but some of them were at the beginning of their careers. They were trying criticism. For instance, a really good example is that in the 1950s, before he was famous, before he published Portnoy's Complaint, before he published um, Goodbye Columbus, Philip Roth was the film reviewer of the New Republic. No one had ever heard of him. This was not a big deal to hire Philip Roth as the film reviewer. This was like trying out some kid and seeing like, maybe he'll be good at it. Um, so that's, that's one of the interesting things about working at a magazine that's been around over a hundred years is that you get to see like, oh, this was, this was like what a famous writer did when they were just starting out. And then, but, and then when you bring it out from the archive, it's like, look at this, this huge famous person that wrote for us. Mm -hmm. um, of course, there were also people who were already famous or Nobel Prize winners, um, best-selling authors who wrote at the height of their fame for the New Republic too. And that's still true. I mean, um, among the people that have written for us recently, Marilyn Robinson wrote an essay about right. um, the anniversary of the Reformation. John Banville frequently contributes. Um, Vivian Gornick, who is one of the great feminist writers um, writes frequently for us. So I, I think there is some, like there, there will always be that kind of writing in the magazine. And then the other thing that the other part of your question is sort of, was it, is it hard to get people that, you know, will write a really mm. solid essay? I think actually it's probably, that's never been a problem. I think writing the quality of writing across the board is improving I definitely see no shortage of really brilliant young, youngish essayists because they're reading so much and they're reading so many of these essays and they're so steeped in all the discourse that they really know their way around the form and they know all the, the moves and like they kind of know how to, to make their arguments to maximum effect. So I feel like pretty lucky that there's, such a wide range of talented reviewers to choose from that's so interesting in in a world where i don't know we naturally think that public discourse has just gone to crap mainly because of social media mm -hmm. it's so interesting to hear you saying that you actually think it's on one level is better than it's ever been oh well i agree with you that the discourse in general is is worse um and I think that is largely because of social media. But I think in this corner of it, which is a, which is kind of the opposite of social media, right? It's long. It takes a long time to write. I mean, to publish um to publish a four thousand word book review in the print edition of the New Republic takes many months. Like it's not something that you just um you know think oh this is my take and you publish it because you're probably going to have to read a load of books and then make yeah. notes on them draft the piece then I have to edit it and that might take a while going back and forth and then it's going to go into a layout 
and it's going to be read by a copy editor. It's going to be a fact checker. Then it has to be printed. Um, so all these things take time. So I think all of that stuff sort of like slows down, but also deepens the process of thinking. And I think that's why it does feel so different from the very quick reactive conversations that often happen online. One of my questions for you was what, what you thought a print magazine can bring to the cultural or political discourse in a world of social media where things are moving so fast, but you've kind of just answered that. It's that it actually brings some some proper discipline and some proper thought to the process. Well, I think, and I think there's a, another answer too, which is that one of the difficulties of publishing monthly rather than daily is that you can't predict what's going to happen in between, you know, writing your piece and publishing it. Um, so you kind of have to keep trying to get ahead of events or look ahead. Um, and I think the result of that is that you try to come up with ideas that are big enough to last a bit right. longer. Um, yeah. If they're not quite evergreen, at least that they might have you know, six month lifespan instead of a one week lifespan. And that's a really useful way to think about stories um, and sort of push yourself to find the biggest frame that you can for a story and to broaden it and like go into the implications because those are the things that aren't going to age poorly. Whereas journalism that just tries, tries to keep up with like the latest developments is going to be overtaken the next day. Focusing on weird Nicki Minaj tweets. And <laughs> right. Although that one has played for a lot longer than I thought it would. We're on day four. <laughs> How do you think the magazine's changed in its kind of hundred years? It's more than a hundred years. How do you think it's changed over its history? I mean, some of the changes are astonishing and inevitable because when I look back through the archive, um, you see pieces that are debating like whether we should have social security, which is the American version of a pension. Yeah. Um, you see pieces arguing to provide Medicare, which is um, medical care for people over 65. And so all these kind of milestones that I've always thought of as just, this is, this is the way things are, were being played out in the pages of the magazine. The people, people were, who founded this magazine were living in a world where these basic things didn't exist. And so obviously as those developments happen, the politics changes. The magazine's also been owned by different sets of people over the years yeah. and different owners have different visions for what they want from the magazine. So it started off as a kind of beacon of progressive era thought and then it became a Washington magazine, moved to DC. Um, in the 1980s, it's more neoliberal, and then in recent years has sort of shifted back to its roots, I think. The idea of a progressive left-leaning magazine in the States at the moment is quite hard to imagine, to be honest, in some ways, from looking at it from the outside in. Is it a tough place to be? Um, well, I think it, there's, there are a lot of magazines that do that do, do something similar in the US, Mother Jones, The Nation, The American Prospect. Um, so there is a very lively culture of um, liberal commentary and writing. And I, yeah, I don't, I don't see anything that unusual about that. Is it harder in the sense that you're 
you kind of in the middle of this. We've got it in the UK as well, but you're in the middle of this culture war. Does that make it harder, or does it, or does it actually solidify your audience? Definitely, there there is that, but I think that, uh, and we write about that sometimes and engage with it. But I think there are more important issues that we would cover more often. You know, policy um, um, and. And and kind of like the big ideas that underpin politics. So I think we're not necessarily as interested in getting into fights about you know the rebranding of Mr. Potato Head, because because that is that is a huge distraction. And I think maybe five or six years ago, a lot of left leaning media publications felt like, oh well, this is a place we could consolidate our audience and kind of preach to the choir and and so on. And I'm not really sure that works. I think a, a lot of people on the left are not that interested in it um, and that they really do want to see policies that will improve people's lives. Like, you know, extending the eviction moratorium is one example. So I I think that's where the best work is being done. Um, And then on the cultural side of things, I'm more interested in looking at enduring subjects, like genuine engagement with the work of art and things that might be difficult about it rather than um, getting into this, back and forth with the right about basically the crudest version of politics playing out through culture. You also co-host New Republic's Politics of Everything podcast. Mm -hmm. Can you describe the podcast for us? What do you do with that? Um, So I am co-host of the podcast with Alex Perrine, um, who's also host. Um, It's about a half an hour show um, every two weeks. And we usually have one story and, and we usually try to choose sort of like a surprising subject or phenomenon and kind of untangle the unexpected politics of it. Um, so recently we did an episode on um, the Lyme disease vaccine. There was a vaccine yeah. for Lyme disease. Um, and everyone I spoke to thought this sounded amazing and that they would love to get it. And no one had heard of it. No one knew that it had ever been available. No one knew that it had been withdrawn 20 years ago. Um, and so we talked to people about how that happened, why that happened, political decisions that led to it happening, and what the future of you know something like that might be. I've got to ask you, why was it withdrawn? <laughs> um, basically, uh, well, it's really complicated. Uh, basically, people um, were very hesitant to get the vaccine, so it, it feels kind of like an analog to our moment with yeah. the co- yeah. coronavirus vaccine. And also the manufacturer didn't have indemnity from lawsuits, so it was being sued oh. and basically couldn't afford to keep offering um, the vaccine in the face of all this exposure to liability. And, and, and also people didn't take Lyme disease that seriously 20 years ago, so it, didn't, it wasn't seen as a vaccine that everyone really needed. So is it a single is it a single issue in the podcast? You talk about one topic in the in the episode? Um we've done episodes that that do a couple of different things, but usually yeah, we usually do one subject and we try to go a little bit deeper into it and talk to a few people who have different perspectives um, and who can unfold different aspects of the subject. So what do you think the podcast adds to the kind of magazine mix that you've already got between the print and online? I think I think there are stories that we can do on the podcast that don't necessarily make sense in the magazine. And partly it's because the frame of the podcast is this politics of everything frame. Um, so recently we did this episode about how 
American dentists were horrifically over-treating their patients, giving people like 20 root canals, if you can imagine, oh, if you can imagine that. Um, and I'm not sure that's something that we would actually cover in the print magazine okay. because, you know, it's a little more focused on Washington and hard politics. And yeah. I think our readers might be like, why are you talking about dentists? Um, but the politics of everything, like that is kind of what we do. Like we try and take something that doesn't seem like it's political um, and show the political factors that um, that shaped it and also just try to unfold that story more. So do you think there's a different audience coming to the podcast than would come to the magazine? Um, I hope that there's some overlap. I think that the people who read the magazine are looking for a range of different stories, um, particularly because the magazine is this mix of politics and culture. Um, personally, I also just feel like I listen to a lot of podcasts and um, and I read a lot of magazines, but I, I feel like I go to them for slightly different things and different experiences, mm. um, especially as podcasts are something I can engage with when I'm doing dishes or going on a walk, you know? Like <laughs> it's a slightly different mode. And yeah. I think um, definitely as I've been doing more of them, the thing I've realized is like the way you tell a story in a podcast is a bit different than in a, in a print magazine. Like when I'm editing for the print magazine or writing, I'm trying to like make these dense sentences that have like, you know, real economy with the wording so that there's no repetition and everything is so tight. And um, definitely on the podcast, you kind of want to make sure that people actually hear what you're saying. Um, and as, as I'm sure you know, but saying things in the simplest way and trying to keep repeating them so that the point gets across. Yeah. Um, definitely is a slightly different mode of telling the story. I think the thing that's really cool about it is that you can actually hear voices. Um, when we did an episode about um, the Tories, we did this episode about how the Conservative Party had, um, why it had dominated English politics for so long. Um, we got to use a clip of Boris Johnson's voice in which he sounded really ridiculous. And I don't think that that would have come across in a quote, you know, like in a written quote, because the bumbling yeah. nature of it was just, you yeah. know, as you're probably aware, yeah. <laughs> um, really hard to capture. Yes. Um, and, and I think that um, you can execute a really satisfying twist in a story in a podcast too with a really great piece of audio that you know where someone is basically telling you like everything you've heard up to this moment isn't actually right because of this yeah. fact um and that can be really you know exciting to, to hear that just to hear suddenly that twist in the story um it's it just lands differently i think than when you're doing a piece that's written we ask all our guests for a media recommendation. It can be anything. Uh, it can be a book. It could be a podcast. It could be anything you want. What would you recommend to our listeners? Well, this is more of a US-specific recommendation, but in the last year, um, I discovered a site called Kaiser Health News, um, which I had never heard of before, but is definitely like the best website and news source for news about American healthcare, which is a complete nightmare like bureaucratic mess and designed to be completely incomprehensible to the people who actually depend on it for treatment. So I feel like they are doing God's work. They break down people's medical bills. They challenge them for them, their report on healthcare policy. And I think that they are 
amazing. <laughs> they should be given some kind of medal. So all the stories we've talked about this week actually also appear in our daily newsletter. Uh, that brings you the four most important stories in publishing and media each day. Uh, you can sign up for that on our website, voices.media, or you can also sign up for our Twitter profile, thanks to a very snazzy review integration, which is at Media Voices Pod. And if you want to keep us getting up early on the weekend to do this nonsense, give us some cash. You can go to a Kofi page, which allows you actually to now sign up for a monthly subscription, which, you know, means we'll keep doing it for longer. So if you want to support us, go to voices.media slash, funnily enough, support. I love if anybody types in voices.media funnily enough support. Um, and don't forget, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, the Publisher Podcast Award entries are now open until December the 10th. You can find out everything you need to know about getting your podcast in front of a panel of the most amazing judges from across the publishing world by going to publisherpodcastawards.com. But until next week, when we'll be back with our 200th episode somehow, um, which we're not doing a special for. <laughs> so... <laughs> But yeah, we'll be back next week with a fantastic guest and another tour through all the news and the views from the media world over the past week. And I'll put in a birthday celebration sound at the start or something. But thank you very much for listening to this week's episode and do stay safe.